Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, uh, episode 24. Um, yes, you are hearing hushed tones, and that is because it is currently 2.48 in the morning, uh, and my wife is in the next room asleep. She has assured me that she could sleep through me speaking at a normal tone, but uh, I don't trust that. So, uh, so yeah, this is, this is what we've got. Um... So, uh, real quick, before we delve into uh, the topic today, um, I wanted to uh, express something. Um, I'm kind of in a a weird place right now with the podcast, because um, my intention for the show was always for it to be uh, film-specific. I mean, it is film-specific, but like, uh, you know, it would be a Christian show about movies, and movies would be uh, kind of front and center. And uh, I, I, I almost feel like um, the last few episodes in which we've actually discussed movies, you know, of course, uh, uh, we had an uh, interview with Doug Jones, an interview with uh, Corey Edwards. But uh, the last few uh, episodes in which we've specifically spoken about uh, a movie, um, I feel like maybe they have been too heavy on the... Uh, on the Christian side, I know that sounds weird because I and I don't want to distance myself from that, but it's just I feel like almost as if I've been tackling the films themselves, uh, almost as if they were an excuse so that I can talk about this theme or that theme or whatever. Um, and uh, that might just me be uh, me being paranoid, but uh, uh, if it isn't, um, I want to. Uh, I kind of apologize, I guess, because um, one thing that I've that I've tried to emphasize is that um, the reason that so much Christian art is bad is that it's the it starts with the message and then it deci- and then it builds the art around that, and um, and I feel like you know uh, there's nothing wrong with art for its own sake, um, and if and if you know if a film or a song or something is is meant to be a sermon then that's pretty much the only thing it will it will ever succeed at being um not really a work of art but uh anyway so um so it's just kind of the the feeling that I've been getting about um these episodes uh, specifically the last one um I, I I'm perfectly pleased with some of the points that I made but I just feel like almost it's like oh uh, the wolfman well now I can now here's an opportunity for me to talk about what I see, you know, from as a Christian, what I see in werewolf movies, you know. And then I wind up talking, I think, more about uh, the films thematically than I do artistically. And um, and that's that's perfectly fine because I, I, I do want, you know, Christians to slowly but surely acknowledge that thematically... You know, there can be a lot going on with movies that they would normally write off. But I do want to... I do want to try to return to an emphasis on film analysis and breaking down, you know, breaking a film down to its artistic ponent, uh, components as well. Because, you know, um, if you're, you know, if you're a Christian and you want to make art uh, of any kind, um, like I said, an appreciation of what an appreciation and a, and an understanding of what makes good art is just as important as how to 
uh, work, you know, any themes that you might have into the art itself. Um, and so, uh, so I feel like I've, I've been neglecting one in favor of the other. And, uh, yeah, so, um, I feel like maybe, I don't know, maybe I lost, uh, some listeners or something because of that, because, uh, the, uh, faith aspect turned them off of it. And, uh, and again, this is a Christian show, so that's what it's going to, that's what it's going to remain. I'm never going to distance myself from that. But, uh, but nonetheless, I just, I feel like I've been kind of giving a short shrift to the, uh, the artistic elements of, uh, of these films. So I'm going to try and, uh, try and balance it a little bit more. Um, and we'll see how it goes with, uh, with this episode. There's a lot going on with the films that we'll be talking about, uh, today. But, uh, anyway, so I just wanted to say that. And, uh, and of course, uh, I also wanted to, uh, uh, announced that there's uh, something going on with the blog. Uh, former guests uh, Nathan Potter and Sean Richardson uh, have, uh, at my request, uh, embarked on a series of blogs. Um, Nathan is going to be going through uh, the Book of Job and just kind of commenting on, you know, what he, you know, uh, what strikes him as he reads through it. And then uh, Sean is going to be going through uh, the Book of Luke. Um, and uh kind of doing the same thing. So, uh each one will be uh each one will be released uh every week. So, um you know, if you suddenly find that the that the that the blog is flooded with a bunch of uh biblical studies, um that's that's why um because uh I do I do want the website itself to be a a, a you know, a resource for uh, you know, Christians and film fans and and all that. So uh so yeah, there's you know, uh they they've both written um kind of their basic introductions and then uh then the blog entries are are going to be up uh, pretty much once a week. So so keep a lookout for that if you're interested. But right now, um let's go ahead and uh and jump into it. Um so listeners of Battleship Pretension, um uh, probably heard uh, in the last couple of weeks, um, my co-host and I saying what our favorite movies of 2009 uh, were. And my second favorite film is a uh, German film called The White Ribbon. And uh, it's written and directed by, by Michael Haneke. That is how I'm going to say his last name. Um, I've heard several different pronunciations, but, uh, you know... Uh, it could be wrong, and I apologize if I'm insulting him or anything like that. But uh, but that's how I'm going to say it. Michael Haneke, uh, he's a he's a good director, and he uh, the only thing of his that I had seen previously was a film called uh, Funny Games, um, which he actually he made uh, uh, in 1997, and then he uh, in German, uh, and then he remade uh, I think 2008. I think 2008, I should have looked that up, but anyway, he remade it, um, in English, uh, with Tim Roth and Naomi Watts, and, uh, you know, because a lot of the themes that he, that he was exploring with that film, uh, are very specific to, uh, kind of critiquing, uh, audiences in the way they view violence in film, and, uh, frankly, I always thought when I watched the original, I thought like, oh, well, he's kind of going for the wrong audience here because he I think he should probably be aiming this at a uh, at an American audience and uh, and then sure enough 
few years after I thought that um, he did he did an almost uh, shot for shot remake uh, of his uh, original film, but uh, to general audience uh, uh, indifference. But uh, but when I saw Funny Games, he's just Haneke is is. I would say first and foremost, he's an actor's director. Uh, he writes really great characters, gives them uh, fascinating things to do, and then just kind of lets that carry uh, the film. Um, and more often than not, he will put characters in very, very bad situations. Um, Situations that you would not want to be in. Uh, in the case of uh, Funny Games, I'll make reference to that because, as I've said, it's the only other one I've seen of his. Uh, in the case of Funny Games, it's a, a husband, wife, and their son, and they are basically held hostage in their own home. Uh, now, when I say held hostage, uh, that implies that uh, that there is a ransom, uh, and there isn't. The two guys who hold them. Uh, really make no demands. They, there's really no reason for them to be doing this except uh, the fact of just that they wanted to do it. And uh, and dealing with that kind of sociopathic uh, quality um, really makes for uh, a rather hopeless situation for the family. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to uh, spoil anything, but uh, watching, watching kind of the psychological games between um, the family and, the, and their captors uh, is really, it's invigorating, but it is also um, horrendous. I mean, it's just, you, you do not like watching this stuff. I mean, uh, and based on what I've heard of uh, other of uh, Michael Haneke's uh, films, he really specializes in making audiences uncomfortable with, uh, you know, because, you know, it's, with with almost any other genre of film, like, for example, the horror genre or um, comedy, uh, or, you know, romance, uh, filmmakers say, well, you know, these are all legitimate human emotions, and so uh, why would I not want to explore these? And uh, Michael Haneke, you know, um, discomfort and suspense and frustration, like, those are all legitimate human emotions, and, uh, and he seems very interested uh, in exploring them. And uh, some people have said that he is punishing his audiences, and uh, I don't, I don't necessarily think so. I mean, he's getting, getting them to, he's certainly getting them to feel, which is something more than uh, you know most films do. So, um, so that brings us to uh, the White Ribbon, which uh, I won't, I won't give a lot of the story away, um, partially because there's not a lot to give away. It's not very plot heavy, but basically, it is. It takes place in a uh, German village pre World War One. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, a bunch of, uh, you know, villagers, farmers, uh, uh, just living seemingly peacefully together. Uh, there is a, kind of a local, uh, a local baron who everybody kind of, either, they either work for him or they work for somebody who works for him. I mean, just everybody is kind of uh, indebted to him. Um, but anyway, the, uh, the film... Uh, kicks off with um, the local doctor uh, being uh, tragically hurt. Uh, he's uh, riding his horse, and uh, there's a, uh, a small piece of uh, twine tied in between two trees, and the horse trips on it, and the doctor goes flying and hurts himself quite a bit, and he gets taken uh, out of the town. And nobody knows who did it. 
um, you know, and uh, this and then a couple other things in the town start to happen as well, um, in which, you know, people get hurt, uh, in some cases quite badly. And, um, and what's interesting is that some of these things are clearly things that a person have, has done. You know, a piece of twine doesn't just get, doesn't just magically appear between two trees. But then there's also, uh, a person who gets hurt, uh, in, uh, a sawmill, uh, I'm sorry, killed in a sawmill, and that seems to be an accident. But the two incidents come so close together that, um, and then there's another incident after that, um, that it really starts to arouse people's suspicions. And uh, and so we'll get to kind of the, the thematic uh, elements of this um, in a moment, but first I just want to talk about, uh, you know, the artistic elements, as I said I was going to. Um... First off, the film is shot in uh, black and white. Uh, I'll, I'll make the same joke here that I made on Battleship Pretension. The thing that fascinated me about, uh, not fascinated, but just uh, something that kind of struck me about the film is that uh, it's everything that somebody who doesn't watch foreign films, it's, it's, every, it's everything that those people think a foreign film is. It's, well, foreign, first off. It's a period film. It's shot in black and white. It's very long and it moves very slowly, and quote unquote nothing much happens, and so um, so I could see you know just in general I could see you maybe being a little put off by this film, but uh, it is shot in black and white and I'm somebody who who thinks that uh, black and white can be absolutely beautiful, um, which you know uh, slight tangent already, um, you know when I lived in uh Missouri not to imply that this is uh <laughs> distinct just to uh uh Missouri but uh you know I've lived a lot of places and and I remember I would always uh black and white never bothered me um and and it and it bothered some it, it did bother some of my friends they just could not get into it it just it was just so such a different experience for them watching uh an older film or even a newer film shot in black and white you know, you're just so used to seeing things in color, and of course, life itself is in color, and so, um, so they just had no had no interest in it. But uh, I happen to think the black and white, when done well, can be incredibly beautiful. And sure enough, the uh, the cinematography for the White Ribbon was nominated. It was also up for best uh, best foreign film this past year, but uh, the cinematography was also nominated um, because. Black and white just, it, it really, in my experience, and that's the thing, is I, I did not uh, major in cinematography uh, or anything like that, so I can only talk about the way camera work makes me feel. And of course, this is a period film, so to a certain extent, it just seems right that this should be in black and white. But at the same time, it just, it adds a certain, even though it is a period film, it does add a timeless element this, even though it is very specifically pre-World War One, this, the events and the way in which they're shot, the fact that it's black and white, um, makes it feel like it could happen anytime. It could have happened, th- these events could have happened, you know, 20 years ago, 200 years ago. I mean, it's just, it, it really adds uh, a feeling uh, of non-specificity to the, to the events. Um, and that's just kind of how I reacted to it um 
but also just in general. Uh, not so much with, with this film, but, uh, but the use of black and white can really uh, give a cinematographer the opportunity to, to play with shadows and light because, you know, shadows will, will drop, you know, can in black and white can drop to a very dark, inky blackness. Um, and which can only add to, uh, to the suspenseful nature of certain films. And you get a little bit of that, uh, in this film, but, uh, but moving on to, uh, the way the film is, is acted, um, there's a very large cast of characters. There's adults, there's children, there's men, there's women. Um, and, and all of them, of course, act very beautifully and, and there's a lot of moments, um, one thing that Michael Haneke is really good at is just letting the camera linger uh, on an actor's face. Or uh, letting it linger on a face or maybe so that we can hear a sound that an actor makes. Um, and, uh, and The White Ribbon is, is, is certainly no different uh, than his other films in this sense that, uh, that there are... What I... <sighs> What I like about it in the way that it deals with its characters and the complexity of its characters is that um, there, there's almost always somebody that you think is going to be one way, and then they turn out to be another. But it's not necessarily night and day. You think, oh, th- this guy's clearly a negative character, and then he turns out to have some positive elements uh, to him. But he still is kind of negative. And much in the same way, you know, there's a character... Uh, for example, there is a uh, a pastor character who is very strict with his children, and um, I'll go ahead and I'll be honest about this. Uh, one of the one of the things that he is most strict about uh, his one of his sons is uh, probably around eleven or twelve, right around the age of puberty, and of course, um, I'm not. I'm sure I'm not uh, uh, surprising anyone when I say that. Uh, when a young man enters puberty, there are certain uh, certain urges, certain temptations that he's going to be uh, drawn towards, and um, and so this uh, the kid's father, um, the the pastor, uh, takes rather drastic uh, measures um, to keep his kid from uh, from impurity and and that sort of thing, um, and so that in itself, I mean, the, the theater that I saw it in. Uh, the woman in front of me was just shaking her head and actually making audible noises uh, in response to what the pastor was doing. Um, and uh, and it is it is frustrating to see him do that, but you do you do have moments where you see that he's not doing this out of frustration or anger or hatred or judgment or or he he doesn't delight in punishing his his son he does it because he loves him and he truly believes that he is doing the right thing now of course um you know uh, he is he's running a christian household and of course uh, striving for purity is fine but at the same time uh when he when his son has to sleep with his uh when it, with his hands tied to the sides of the bed so that he does not touch himself well in that case that's not necessarily real purity that's more forced purity so uh, that's I would say that's pretty wrong um, in every oh also it's probably bad parenting as well but um, but he does do it out of love and and so you see like he when he gives explanations for his for his actions he does not seem like a horrible person he just seems like a 
somewhat misguided father who actually does have a genuine concern for his son. So there's, but there's a lot of characters like that. Uh, the Baron himself, you just kind of, you know, this is the guy who pretty much runs the community. So of course, what what would you expect? You expect him to be uh, this taskmaster, this guy who's just very bourgeois and just doesn't care about anybody. And it, and far from it, he actually he cares uh, very deeply about the community. Um, but uh, but here's where we here's where we'll start to kind of get into some of the the thematics is. Uh, something that really, there's a lot of things going on with the film, by the way. Um, there's a lot of thematic elements, uh, to, to discuss, but I'm going to kind of focus in on one specifically, one that really got me is, um, the way that, you know, because these events happen, some of them, uh, were done purposefully, some not necessarily, some of them probably accidental, but once they start happening and once people start to, uh, they're afraid, uh, because like, oh, well, who knows when you know, the person will, will strike again. There's an element of that, but, um, there's also an element of, of grief and frustration. You know, when something happens, when something negative happens and there's no one to blame. Now, of course, in the case of these, there is somebody to blame, but they don't know who it is yet. And so there's a certain satisfaction that one needs one needs to actually have a face. One needs to actually see somebody and be like, that. this person is at fault. And if that does not present itself, then people will go looking for somebody to blame. Um, and I will now, uh, I will tell a story that uh, about my own life um, that is, uh, you know, I've mentioned before that I, I feel like people are probably tired of me telling stories about my, uh, my father. Um, but, uh, but I feel like it actually does, uh, sort of apply to this. Um, so my father passed away in 2002 and, uh, and he was not in the best physical shape. He wasn't like, uh, you know, he wasn't 300 pounds or, or 400 pounds or anything like that. Um, but he was just, you know, he was overweight and he wasn't happy about it. Um, but, uh, and so when he passed, you know, when he died of a heart attack, no one was incredibly surprised. Uh, particularly because he tended to stress out over his job. Uh, so much so that uh, he was working towards... Uh, I mean, he recognized this, and he tried to do things about it, but uh, uh, so he, he realized that, you know, uh, this is getting to be too much for me, and so he was going to go into a semi-retirement uh, at the age of 50. He had planned ahead significantly, financially, and, um, and realized that uh, he could go from full-time to part-time. Uh, in his company, uh, and uh, that way he'd be able to spend more time with my mom. I had at this point gone away to college. My brother was not in the house, so it was just the two of them. And I think uh, my dad was looking to spend more time with my mom and all that. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the bitter, bitter irony is that uh, the the first week of him going uh, of of switching to part time uh, is the week that he died. Um, but he actually, it, it's odd, he actually, when I last spoke to him, uh, which was Wednesday, um, April 17th, uh, the day before he died, uh, I spoke to him about how everything was going at work, and he actually said it, it was weird. And I said, oh, well, why is it weird? And he goes, well, you know, he goes, I'm kind of, re-, he goes, I'm kind of retiring, or at least I'm in the process of retiring, I'm going to part-time right now, and, 
and uh, some of the guys here kind of making jokes, you know, kind of passive aggressive jokes about like, oh, geez, I wish I could retire, you know, um, I wish I, you know, I wish I'd planned ahead, you know, like just kind of things like like that where um, they seem innocuous, but when they're directed at the person who actually is going from full time to part time, um, it can seem kind of aggressive, and so. So he said that it was just kind of bothering him, and and uh, and he was just getting I don't know kind of frustrated, and uh, so that was uh, the seventeenth, and then on the eighteenth he uh, he passed away uh, of a heart attack, and um, <laughs> and so as I said, we kind of go looking for people to blame, and I had those words in my head about the way his coworkers were treating him. And um and I just somehow thought that okay, well, you know, the I know that this is these are ostensibly natural causes, but uh, my dad tended to stress out about work and these guys were giving him crap and I like <laughs> I I got so angry at his coworkers cuz I was somehow convinced that they they had caused this or they certainly had not helped. And so I, uh, I actually like called his, I actually called his work, uh, and uh, but then I realized I didn't know who to ask for. I didn't know the name of any names of any of his coworkers. And what I was, what was I going to say? Like, yes, hello, is uh, let's say Bill. Yeah, hello, is Bill there? Yes, hello, Bill. I'm Tyler Smith. I'm Kevin Smith's son, and uh, and uh, you killed him. You know, I'm not going to say that. It wasn't planned out, but like I, I called the company and then I was just like, this is dumb. And so I, I, I hung up. But I was actually very angry at the people at his company, even though, quite frankly, it's just, it's a thing that happened. He was out of, he, he was out of, uh, you know, he was out of shape. He stressed out over his job and he died, uh, probably as a result of those two things together. Um... But, you know, if he had been hit by a car or, or like a drunk driver, if he had been like mugged or something like that, not that I think there was any danger of that in Nixon, Missouri, but if one of those things had happened, then I could clearly point at somebody and say, that's the person that killed my dad. But he just, you know, it was just something seemingly random. And who do you blame? You know, uh, and there's just a, the frustration and the anger of grief just kind of, pushes people to blame other people and it can really like break up uh, a community and that's what we see happening in the white ribbon is uh, people start blaming other people and just getting really uh, suspicious of each other and just you know at a time when the community really should be banding together they're actually becoming even more broken apart and so um, so I think like that's one of the that's one of the themes, um, especially because wh- uh, I'll try not to be too spoilery about it. But with the with the white ribbon, um, you kind of get the impression that some of the um, some of the acts are done almost as a punishment of the villagers for the way in which they're behaving. Now, of course, how are they behaving? Well, none of them are be- behaving particularly terrible, but they're just flawed. And so, um, and of course that's an, that's, that's, that's an entire other theme. It's just, you know, people are being punished for one could venture to say their sins or their, uh, you know, or their faults. 
and uh, and nobody knows who did it, and so one could say like, oh well, it's God punishing them. I'm not sure if I would go that far, and that's uh, that's a discussion for another day, I think. But um, but yeah, so their frustration and anger with uh, with the situation translates out to them turning on each other. And before you know it, just the village is just in in shambles. Uh, even so much that uh, one of the guys that everybody starts to think, oh, you know, I bet it was this guy, I bet it was this guy, and he's you know protesting his innocence and saying, no, I'm fine, I'm fine, uh, I didn't, I didn't do this. Um, he actually, uh, spo- I didn't say who it was, but w- if you start watching the film, you'll you'll start you'll know who I'm talking about. But anyway, um, he actually can't take it anymore, and he uh, hangs himself because he just can't take it you know when everyone turns against you what what can you do i mean nothing rational drove them to blame you so what what makes you think rationality is going to save you and so um so like that's an example of just the way that uh that the the grief and the frustration and the suspicion that these people are feeling uh drives them apart um or not even not even just a part. It drives them to to turn on each other. But um, and so with that, we're actually going to uh, transition into um, we're going to transition into uh, the companion film, which is a, a film that I love. It was made in '97. It was called uh, "The Sweet Hereafter." It was written and written and directed by uh, Adam Agoyan. That's a A T O M, not Adam, as in uh, Adam and Eve. Um, and it was based on a novel written by, uh, Russell Banks, which is, which is a, uh, a great book, by the way. Um, I've read three Russell Banks novels, uh, all of them, uh, very distinct from each other, but, uh, with a very definite, uh, uh, theme and of course a consistency in writing style. But, uh, and I recommend them all. Um, one is called, uh, uh, Continental Drift. One is called Affliction and The Sweet Hereafter. And basically, the events of the Sweet Hereafter involve um, again a small town, uh, and something terrible has happened. And basically, uh, it's a northern town, and it's snowy, and it's icy, and uh, ba- and the local the school bus because all the kids kind of go to the same school. Why did I say kind of? They all go to the same school anyway. Um, and the bus, the school bus picks them all up. And then it runs off the road uh, onto a frozen lake, and the ice cracks, and the bus goes underwater, and all but one of the children is dead. So, very tragic. And of course, when all of the youth of of a small town is suddenly gone, I mean, uh, you know, because of a freak accident, what do you do? And the uh, the characters' reactions to this, um, you know, they they all are just in in some form of shock. Some of them become angry. Some of them just become depressed. Some of them become sad. There's, I mean, there's a lot going on. Um, and basically, uh, a lawyer, an out of town lawyer, hears about the tragedy, and he comes to town to try and sign them all up, sign them all up for a lawsuit. Um, against who, though? Well, maybe a, maybe a bolt was wrong on the bus, or maybe the guardrail that was supposed to keep you know cars from flying off the road. Maybe it was too weak, or something like that. Like he really is just kind of casting a wide net, and he'll see what he catches, um, because he sees uh, a great deal of potential to make a lot of money. 
But um, anyway, and so, but it's it's implied that uh, that the the character, the lawyer, is not the only lawyer that has come to town, and that there's actually quite a few of them, and uh, they're all kind of competing to sign people up, and uh, and it really starts to, again, like with the white ribbon, it it starts to fracture the town. And there's a few key scenes that make reference to kind of what I'm, what I'm talking about. Um, there's a character named Billy Ansel, played by Bruce Greenwood, um, who was recently uh, Captain Pike in the, uh, the, st- the new Star Trek reboot. And uh, he's a good actor. I'm a big fan of him. Uh, but probably the film that kind of put him on the, uh, put him on the map for me was The Sweet Hereafter. Um, and Billy is he's just a mechanic. Uh, and his wife has died, and uh, his and his uh, two kids were on the bus, and he actually would follow the bus in his truck as he would drive to work because they would go the same way. So he'd put the kids on the bus, and then he would drive behind them. They would stand, they would sit in the back and look at him through the window, and he'd wave at them. And then, of course, the bus would go one way, and he'd go another. And um, so he's driving along when the bus goes off off the road and onto the lake so he actually sees the bus go into the water and he's uh helpless to to stop it so billy uh his and so of course he's lost his wife and he's now lost his two children and he actually saw them die and so he maybe more than anybody else in the community is his is totally alone now and there's nothing he can do. But there is, there's a woman that he has been having an affair with, uh, not an affair on his side, of course. Uh, she is married, and, um, and she, you know, sneaks away, and they have, uh, you know, these dalliances. But, uh, but she and her husband, they've also lost a son and, uh, in, the, in the tragedy. And so, so when Billy hears that this woman um, has signed up a lawyer. He's just, he, he's just very frustrated by the whole situation. Um, because he sees what's happening in the community. He sees that everybody's pointing fingers and everyone's saying, Oh, well maybe the, you know, maybe this happened or maybe this is the reason why some, you know, and, uh, and in talking to her, he says, you need to stop this. It was just an accident. You know, it's, it's nobody's fault. It's just something that happens. And she actually responds by asking him. There is a uh, a girl uh, on the bus. The one the one girl that lived, played by Sarah Polly. Um, she was wearing a sweater given to her by Billy. She would come and babysit his kids, and uh, he gave her one of his wife's old old sweaters, his dead wife's, you know, old sweaters. And uh, and so the. The, the woman that he's having an affair with says, like, is it true that you gave so-and-so one of your wife's sweaters and she was wearing it when the bus went over? And then he's just, like, he's floored that, like, some weird superstition like that would enter this woman's mind. And, and that's when he starts to really realize just how much people need somebody to blame when something, when, when bad things happen. Um, and so he <laughs> he tries to... He tries to appeal to uh, to various people in the community. Um, Billy Ansel, by the way, is a supporting role in the film. Uh, probably the lead role is the lawyer who comes to town. He's played by Ian Holm, from uh, uh, the actor from Alien and um, Lord of the Rings. 
But uh, but Billy actually he goes to various people and tries to get them to drop the lawsuit because he sees that this it's really tearing the community apart. Like I said, when the community is really should be using their shared tragedy to come together. And so it's just both of these films are just so. And by the way, just uh, Sweet Hereafter is just a, a wonder. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's got wonderful acting all around, brilliantly written, beautifully shot. Uh, it's just a, I mean, it's just a great, just a great film. And if ever, uh, you know, if ever, it's, it's weird when you actually are, uh, like grieving or when you're depressed, me anyway, uh, I I will, I will tend to, some people look for art that will cheer them up. I usually look for art that will not necessarily depress me further, but something that will almost give voice to my feelings, almost as a way of saying like, oh yes, look, someone else has dealt with this sort of thing. And The Sweet Hereafter just really understands grief, um, and really understands just the haze that you're kind of walking around in, uh, just this fog, uh, in which you're just like, I, I gotta freaking live my life with this now? Like, you just feel like you can't continue. But, uh, but yeah, and so... So I, it, so I wanted to talk about these two these two films together because both of them are about people who who are met who who see who are met with tragedy. That's not the right phrasing, but they see tragedy. They they go through it in their own lives, and their reaction to it is to just find someone to get mad at because they have no other choice. And so, um, and as a result any kind of community and that's one of the things that uh Billy Ansel says when trying to appeal to somebody because he's he's trying to appeal to the parents of the girl who who survived um and the girl actually lost the use of her legs and so um so they're they're kind of spearheading the uh the lawsuit because they need money and he says well look he goes I'll get, I'll help you if that's what it's about if it's really about the money you can have the money from my kids I don't need it and and he says he says something to the effect of you know because that's what we used to do we used to help each other we used to be part of a community when someone needed help we would help each other as opposed to just sign up all these lawyers and just really start fragmenting the community even further and so uh, I was I really locked into that idea of him saying what the community used to be it used to be people helping each other and so. Um, so I wanted to read a, a couple of Bible verses here. Um, and again, I mean, these verses are very specifically for, I mean, these will hopefully give comfort to Christians. If you're, if you don't believe that, then, uh, this, this probably won't help. Um, it might actually only depress you further. Sorry, everybody. Um, but anyway, so, uh, so I wanted to first address, uh, feelings of grief and frustration and suffering um and what we should do with that and by the way this the verse that i'm about to read it's from second corinthians um it is <laughs> it is not a cure all it doesn't make things it makes things a little bit easier but not a lot um if you're going through some crap in your life this will i mean you could be the most ardent christian in the world this will only help so much. But it does help. It helped me anyway. Um, so Second Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. So it's pretty early in the book. 
Uh, so I'll be reading here. It's uh, kind of lengthy. Um, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which produced in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. Um, Now, the word comfort is said a bunch of times in there. I probably should have counted. I'm not going to count right now. Anyway, um, you know, it's one of those things I've mentioned on the the show before, just the idea that, uh, that everything that we've gone through... Um, it could be suffering, it could be loss, um, has been gone through by Christ. And so when we pray, we're praying to somebody who knows what we've gone through, which is something that, quite frankly, I hate to put it this way, other religions don't have. And that, to me, is tremendous value. Um, Like I said with Sweet Hereafter, you know, uh, these people all have a shared experience, and that in itself can provide a certain degree of comfort to know that you're not the only one uh, that has gone through this. Um, but also, uh, I was recently listening to a sermon by uh, Tim Keller. For those that don't know Tim Keller, he wrote a book called The Reason for God. He is a pastor uh, of a church in New York called Redeemer Presbyterian. And uh, he has a podcast, so just type in Timothy Keller podcast, and it should pop right up. He's got a he's got a lot of great sermons on there. Um, but he, you know, he talked he he talked about you know what to do with our tears, and that we should just we can turn to God, and we can even turn to God and get mad at Him. Maybe not necessarily blame Him, but frankly, we could also blame Him if we wanted to. Um, it's kind of become something of a cliche to say, but God can handle it when we're mad at him. And, uh, Keller actually mentions that, uh, that there are, um, there are parts in the Bible in which, uh, like David is angry at God for things that have happened to him. And and Keller's like, well, wait a minute. Why is it, is it saying it's okay to deal with this? It's okay for us to blame God for our own misfortunes. Um, and the answer is no, we shouldn't necessarily blame him, but but he understands where we're coming from when we are distressed and we're upset. And he, he grants us a great deal of grace. You know, uh, like when, it, like, I'm sure you've probably experienced a friend of yours is under great distress and he winds up kind of flying off the handle at you even, and you, you deal with it and you, you forgive him for it, him or her, because, uh, you know that it's not, it's this other thing and they don't really mean this. And so just to, in times of frustration and sadness and loss, uh, turning to God, not just because he's experienced it, but because he will comfort you. And speaking as somebody who's, un, who's gone through grief, uh, you may not want comfort. You may actually want to live with your grief for a long time because you feel like you're being disloyal if you get, if you get rid of it. Um, but he will bring you comfort. It might be a little bit at a time, 
but it is there. And I realize right now I'm speaking in very big generalities, but that's, that's the most I can do. Um, and so if you're, you know, if you wind up turning to God in times of sadness and anger and bitterness, um, then of course you won't have the the blame for other people. You won't go. You won't even really necessarily go looking for blame, um, uh, looking to place blame, because you're putting everything. You're putting every. You're giving everything over to God. Even if you're yelling at Him, you're still turning towards Him. And so, of course, the hatred and the frustration that you might be, you might otherwise uh, aim at other people. Now, all of a sudden, you will see them, hopefully, as a source of comfort. And, uh, and so I, I, will, I will read this. So keep, keeping that in mind, and then going back to that quote from Sweet Hereafter that Billy Ansel says about what a community is. Um, here's uh, uh, Acts 2, 42 through 47. <clears throat> They, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So here we have people who, they all agree that, you know, they all agree that they need to praise God with, you know, all the things that have, uh, you know, all, for all the things that he's done for them. And all of a sudden, and it just, and it breeds community. They have every, you know, it says they had everything in common. And all of a sudden, they would they sell their possessions and good and goods they gave to anyone who had need. Literally, it's what Billy Ansel is talking about uh, about a, com- a real community. I mean, he lost two children, and he's lost a wife. He could say, like, "Yeah, I'm going to keep my money because it's all I have now," but he'd rather keep the the community together. He would gladly give up his money if he had to. Uh, to keep, to help somebody else so that they don't try to fragment the community. Um, so yeah, uh, I guess that's pretty much all I have to say uh, about these films. Um, they're both wonderful movies. Um, I highly recommend them. Um, of course, you know, White Ribbon, I think, is probably still in theaters, depending on where you live. Um, and I, I really highly recommend it. And it's... I will say it's about two and a half hours, and it moves kind of slow. But oddly enough, uh, I never got—I certainly never got bored by what was going on. Um, I was always fascinated, um, and there is a certain element of like who done it, um, which is weird because this is certainly not a who done it. It's not a Sherlock Holmes film or anything. But uh, but yeah, and so it's—it it really is an intriguing film, and and it just really struck clearly. It struck me uh, in a lot of ways. Um, uh, I just I like the way that it dealt with the complexity of characters and refused you know even though the film is is shot in black and white it refuses to treat its characters in a black and white way it understands that that uh, you know nobody is just like oh okay well clearly this guy's pure evil and this guy's pure good no there's 
there's elements of both in each character. Um, and just because we would prefer to think of this, for example, this pastor is bad, doesn't necessarily mean that he has no good in him. So there's a lot of things going on with the white ribbon that I really loved and really responded to. Um, but I would say even more than that, uh, the sweet hereafter is just a, just a, a heart wrenching film, uh, that just, it's, it is sad. Certainly one could say it's actually very depressing, but there's, I don't know. It's just, it feels so real and so human. It's just, it's, it's based on a wonderful book and it's written by somebody who seems to really understand how people feel, um, and how they respond to adversity. And, uh, I actually, I love the book, but I think I might even like the movie more because it actually explores some things that the book does not. Um, so yeah, so I, I highly recommend, uh, watching both films and, um, yeah. So thanks everybody for listening. Uh, go to more than one lesson.com and, uh, uh, get involved, uh, with, uh, you know, the, the forum or, uh, give a read to, uh, you know, the, the new blog series, um, and see what you think. Uh, it's, it's interesting that both, both Nathan and Sean are quick to point out that they are not professional bloggers. And, uh, and so, but I, I've, I've read their, read their, uh, blog entries and I really think, uh, I really think some good encouraging stuff is going to come out of there. So, uh, so feel free to, uh, to go and, and partake of that. So, uh, you can always email me Tyler at more than one lesson.com and, uh, yeah, thanks for listening and I'll get you next time. Bye. <laughs>